welcome to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Welcome into Soccer Morning. We are live and on the air, and it's going to be a very, very good day around these parts. Uh, Two very excellent guests coming up for you today. Why beat around the bush? Why uh, leave this for later? Let's just go ahead and hype them both up right now. First up, uh, in just a little bit, Peter Wilt. Most recently of Indy 11, the reason to have Peter Wilt on the air is because he is leaving Indy 11. Peter is moving on back to Chicago to join an effort to bring an NASL team to the city of Chicago. That's right, you've heard correctly. So we will talk to Peter Wilt about his new program, his new project, because the thing we know about Peter Wilt, a guy who obviously was instrumental in the launch of the Chicago Fire back in 1998 as part of MLS and has been involved in many a team and many an effort since then to get professional soccer going in many a market, uh, is that uh, if Peter Wilt's involved in the project, it is usually successful. Uh, certainly Indy 11 stands out as a major marker of that success, uh, a big deal there in Indianapolis to get the NASL team off the ground, and now Peter is moving on. So Peter Wilt coming up. You're not going to want to miss that one. Then, after Peter Wilt, Jason Longshore from down in Atlanta. He is uh, part of the Soccer in the Streets program, uh, community outreach using soccer, but he's also involved heavily in the soccer scene in Atlanta, uh, both with the Atlanta Silverbacks over the course of a number of years and now with the MLS team that is starting up next year. And Jason is going to give us his insight on uh, some, some news out of the NASL on the negative side you got a, an effort in chicago lead, led by peter wilt that's a good thing uh bad thing is the shutdown of the atlanta silverback so we'll come to that that's going to be i'll hit the i'll hit the news here in a second and get you just the uh, the basics on that story but jason longshore at 9 40 to give us a sense of what this means for atlanta for the silverbacks and we may broaden out into some topics related to how atlanta is going to do with MLS. Let's start the news right here so we have some time to cover everything. Lionel Messi wins his fifth Ballon d'Or yesterday in Zurich. Ronaldo finishes second. Neymar finishes third. No surprise that Messi, Messi was the one lifting that trophy. Again, this is his record fifth win of that award. It is truly a special time and a special player. Carly Lloyd, the American, wins the Women's Player of the Year ahead of Celia Sasic of Germany. Lloyd becomes the third American woman to win this uh, trophy. Mia Hamm and Abby Wambach, the other two. Uh, Carly Lloyd, this is the, the, the nature of voting, and I'm not going to make this into a big deal, but uh, when you have the coach of a national team, the captain of a national team, and a journalist from that country, uh, from each country voting, you're going to get some wacky ballots. Carly Lloyd, despite running away with the Women's Player of the Year award, was not included on 100 ballots. Think about that. There's 200, 219 t- uh, countries in FIFA, and she wasn't on 100 of them. The ballot, not, not, not like not finished first in the ballot, not, not, uh, picked first, but not at all in the top three. Pretty stunning stuff, but congratulations to Carly Lloyd. Coaches of the year, Jill Ellis on the women's side, head coach of the U.S. women's national team, and Luis Enrique, head coach, uh, manager of Barcelona. The North American Soccer League, and here's that news, suspends operations of the Atlanta Silverbacks. Putting the team's uh, future in uh, in jeopardy clearly, NASL Commissioner Bill Peterson said in a statement that the league was, quote, unable to identify a group that could lead the Silverbacks in a direction consistent with the rest of our clubs. 
unquote. Uh, club, uh, the club originally launched as the Atlanta Ruckus in 1994. So in some form, that uh, that team, that club in lower leagues in this country has been around for a very long time. I find it fascinating that if you go to the Atlanta Silverbacks website today, where once was the statement about the shutdown of operations, you now find a very basic page that says, would you like Atlanta Silverbacks FC to continue operations in another league and then ask for comments on that statement? There are nine comments at the moment. We'll see if that continues to draw some interest and maybe there is a future somewhere else for the Atlanta Silverbacks alongside that MLS team in the city of Atlanta. The FIFA Ethics Committee Investigatory Chamber has uh, asked to appeal the uh, bans of Sepp Blatter and Michelle Platini and appeal them to have them turned into lifetime bans. The Ethics uh, Investigatory uh, Chamber requested lifetime bans originally, but when the adjudicatory, these are hard hard words to say, sorry, adjudicatory arm headed by Hans Joachim Eckert uh, decided on the penalty, they only handed out uh, eight-year suspension. So... This is an interesting development. Um, if you care about whether or not Michel Platini will get back into uh, football governance once his current ban is over, uh, of course, there will be further, further appeals on these bans from both sides. Pep Guardiola has apologized for, quote, unsettling, unquote, his colleagues in the Premier League by previously admitting that he wanted to next coach in England. Of course, Pep has already said that he will not be returning to Bayern Munich next season, that this is his final year in Germany. And he has said that he wants to coach in England. He's also said that he doesn't yet have a plan or a contract for next season that may be more than a year, I doubt it, for him to find a job, and that he will announce his contract the moment he signs it. Lots of speculation, of course, linking him to Manchester City, where Manuel Pellegrini has constantly had to bat down the rumors that uh, that Pep's coming in to take his job. I think most recently, uh, in light of this quote-unquote apology, Manuel Pellegrini said, I'm not worried about that. He's not apologizing for me, et cetera, or to me. I, I'm not sure. Uh, there's a language barrier there. Manchester United manager Louis van Gaal has said his team has left him, quote, bored or angry, unquote, at times while he watches them from the sideline. Manchester United faces Newcastle today, the latest test for van Gaal's team amid crisis talks about their style of play. This is blown up into some pretty ridiculous proportions with Adidas getting involved with their commentary on the state of play for Manchester United, uh, the constant uh, questions about who's scoring the goals and how Manchester United is going out there and where their identity is now under the Dutchman who was meant to come in and stabilize things after the disastrous David Moyes period. Uh, Van Hall probably coaching for his job over the next couple of games. Other Premier League, uh, Premier League games today, two of them, Aston Villa hosting Crystal Palace and Bournemouth hosting West Ham United. So there's your Premier League if you're looking for that today. When we come back, very excited to talk to Peter Wilt, uh, one of the uh, biggest figures in American soccer as he moves on to his next project in Chicago. Soccer Morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. 
with Jason Davis. All right, we are back on Soccer Morning and very excited to have, I don't know if we can call him friend of the show. He's been on numerous times over the course of the last three years, but it's been a while. Peter Wilt, who I would identify you by your title, Peter, but I'm not sure what your title is right now. <laughs> well, first of all, I would like to think I'm a friend of the show. It's just, uh, always good talking to you, Jason. I appreciate uh, that. I'm- I guess I'm outgoing president, general manager of Indy 11, although I will continue to have the general manager responsibilities until we get all the players signed up uh, for the upcoming season. And um, we're making good progress on that on the Indy front. And then my new position uh, is as leader of an effort to uh, start a North American Soccer League team in Chicago. I'm working with Club 9 Sports. That's probably too long to be a title on the business card. I think it's actually senior advisor for Club Nine Sports. Okay, what uh, I've been told I, mean, I am, but uh, it's similar to the situation we had when we launched Indy Eleven about three years ago, where I spent a, a, a couple of months um, working uh, in the community to galvanize support for the NASL team that eventually became Indy Eleven. And then, of course, there I ended up being president and CEO right. uh, in Chicago. Uh, actually, the situation there is I'll likely have a, a piece of the action in terms of uh, ownership, which is wow. uh, one of the things that intrigues me and makes it exciting for me. But, of course, uh, more than that, it's, it's my hometown. It's where I grew up. It's where I've uh, uh, launched a few other soccer teams, including the Chicago Fire. So it all makes it uh, very attractive. Okay. Uh, project for me. You, you completely answered my first question, which was going to be why. Uh, but but then again, I mean, uh, just from what we know about your career, you're 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 a guy who likes the new project, and and obviously Chicago is a draw. So, uh, how about instead of why for you, why Chicago for NESL? I think there's a void in in the soccer landscape in Chicago, and in particular, it's an uh, urban based uh, professional team, a team for the city of Chicago. And, uh, you know, the fire has, has been great, but uh, they're not accessible by uh, public transportation. I think there's a huge swath of uh, soccer fans that just aren't making their way out to Bridgeview. So I, I think there is uh, a void there. I think there's an opportunity. And also the market, my goodness, it's big enough for at least two teams. And I think, as you saw in New York with the Cosmos and New York City FC, uh, it will actually serve to um, spur the fire to bigger and better things. I think it's great in, in any uh, endeavor, uh, but especially in soccer. I think across the United States now, uh, and I don't know if we're in version 3.0, 4.0, or whatever, oh, uh, but you're seeing that one of the next stages is multiple teams in the same market uh, challenging uh, for uh, relevance, interest, and Working to make each other better, and that's the way it is around the world. Okay, okay. I mean, obviously, you know, you you would know better than I what the 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 market conditions are, particularly in a place like Chicago or 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 anywhere that that might have two teams in this country. But there is a, an obvious question about whether or not that's cannibalizing each other versus competition driving. That's, that's, yeah, yeah that, that's a great question. If I can, and I want to address it from a mathematical standpoint which is going to be interesting because I was never great in math in school. <laughs> uh, except on the SATs. For some reason, I got really good SAT math scores, but in practice, I couldn't. So population, 9 million in Chicagoland. Sure. Uh, those interested okay. in soccer, ballpark, 3 million. 
Um, you know, we can argue that number, but, you know, with just the Hispanic population in Chicago land being about 1.5 million, you're halfway there. So I don't think it's a real stretch to say 3 million people in Chicago land are interested in soccer. Uh, and then, um, how many of those are going to, uh, professional soccer games right now, uh, out in Bridgeview? A fraction. Well, if you look at the attendance and you figure that there's a lot of season ticket holders in there, a multiple game, attendees, the actual number of individuals is probably somewhere around 100,000. Maybe you want to stretch it to 200,000, but if you believe the 3 million number that's interested in soccer, that means there's over 2.8 million that are not uh, going to professional soccer games. And I think if you put a team in the city of Chicago that's accessible by public transportation, um, you make them relevant, um, a good attraction, the the community feels like they're part of it, a sense of ownership in the team. Uh, and a big a part of the story that I think has been overlooked yesterday is that we plan to have uh, supporters' uh, investment in the team. Now, it'll be a small percentage, but importantly, it will be real ownership with uh, representation uh, on the board. And uh, I think that's a good thing. And I think, again, competition is good. So I think it's something that, well, when it gets off the ground, will be good for the Chicago Fire as well as for the new team and for the fans of soccer in Chicago. Well, I mean, it, 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 I, this has got to be unique in the history of, of American soccer, at least the modern history, whatever oh, we're in. Like you said, for this, this, the guy who helped launch the, uh, the one team is going back to the same town to try to launch another team. And, and is this an indictment of, of the fire? I mean, obviously you have a soft spot for them, but is this an indictment of, of how successful they've been in, in Chicago whether or not they are accessible from the urban core? Um, I don't know. I think it's uh, it, it's probably a lot of things, and you can't just narrow it to one quality. But I, I think it's also um, a reflection that the fire has established great interest in soccer in Chicago uh, over time. It's been, what, 18 years or so. Uh, and I think that's a credit to, to them, uh, what they've built and what I helped build. And a lot of people help build. And, you know, people forget it's not just the organization that builds a uh, professional soccer team. It's, you know, on the, the, the shoulders of others in the soccer community, whether it's the youth soccer community, adult soccer uh, participants or administrators uh, or, or fans themselves or supporters. Supporters are a huge part of the fire success in the early years and continue to be. Um, so I mean, fire games are still fun and exciting, and I'm a season ticket holder for the Chicago Fire. And I'm going to continue to go to Chicago Fire games, and I encourage everyone in Chicago that likes soccer uh, to continue to go to Chicago Fire games. All right, so uh, you know, what is it about? And having worked, um, you know, in, in MLS certainly in the in the earlier in an earlier era for whatever changes may have happened, and recently in NASL as they. Uh, you know, work towards building that league up. What what is it about NASL that that uh, allows for this sort of effort, and and for you to believe that it's going to be successful in Chicago? Yeah, it's a bit of an entrepreneurial league. I really enjoyed my three years in Indy Eleven, working with the North American Soccer League, and you know, having the freedom to create in your own market um, um, connections and brand, and uh, and build from the bottom up. And the, the NASL will allow that. Yeah, you know, I am a bit of a sports historian and. You know, some people are comparing it to ABA, NBA, or AFL, NFL, uh, or WHA, W, uh, NHL. But I think the better comparison is actually uh, baseball. I think, you know, the, uh, 115 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, Charles Comiskey um, started a new 
uh, major baseball league and built a team, you know, maybe six or seven miles away from the Chicago Cubs or Chicago Orphans, whatever they were called at the time. Yeah, something weird. And I think that's a, maybe a better comparison. I mean, this is a league that sees itself uh, with ambition to be at the top level of the American soccer pyramid. Obviously, right now, um, U.S. soccer designates it um, second division, uh, but it's in the NASL's ability and the team owner's ability to build a league that is top of the pyramid. And, you know, obviously we have challenges and, you know, there's certain things we need to improve on, in particular the play on the field. Um, and if we get that done, uh, whether it's things like infrastructure and marketing and attendance, um, if we can get especially the play on the field improved, and that's within our ability by, for large part, spending money mm-hmm. on players, mm-hmm. um, but also improve coaching, improve officiating, all that stuff. Uh, we can establish a second major league in this country in Canada. Peter, the uh, you know, while there are some positives, and certainly um, you know the success of Indy Eleven, a lot of credit goes to you, and, and obviously to that soccer community there, and the individuals behind the scenes that you worked with. Uh, while there's a positive in in your effort in Chicago that's launching. We do have a negative today when it comes to NASL. It's a shutdown of the, the Atlanta Silverbacks uh, word yesterday. And there are some other concerns out there. People are kind of mystified as to the, the Raya Viacano, um I- I- uh, experiment in Oklahoma City while there's not an established team, but another team in that town. And that's not a, a city of 9 million uh, metro. So what, you know, where is NASL, right? How do we pin down how healthy the league is, um, you know, in, in both in, in relative terms to MLS and then just on their own as a business entity? I think being I'll call it de- a decentralized league, um, the minus of that is that you have individual markets that uh, if they're not uh, operated well and they're not in an optimum location and don't have the best support from an investor standpoint or uh, community standpoint, uh, they will, uh, they will fail. And, uh, I think that's what you saw in Atlanta. I think certainly MLS's presence had a, a, a strong part of that. Uh, but I think it went beyond that. Um, I don't think necessarily the location, um, was the best and, uh, the marketplace bore that out as it, as it should. If a team, uh, isn't doing well, you know, the, uh, let the market uh, dictate whether it, it uh, succeeds or fails. Mm. Uh, I think Ryo's situation is different. You know, I think this is a quality um, ownership group um, that will uh, put the right resources behind it and ultimately uh, do very well in Oklahoma City. Well, you can understand why there might be some trepidation considering that back in Spain, the, the fans are protesting the involvement of Rio Vallecano in the American market while their own club has some financial issues. It's, a, it's sort of an odd thing, and this isn't Barcelona, Real Madrid, Sevilla, some of those uh, bigger Spanish clubs. It, it is a, a club that, that is struggling just to stay relevant in their own country. Yeah, and I think those are issues right now that are more relevant in Spain than they are in Oklahoma City. I think they've got some good people on the ground in Oklahoma City that have good experience uh, running professional sports there and ultimately will be successful. 
All right, uh, back to Chicago here, Peter. Uh, uh, Mark Fishkin on Twitter. Uh, I'm sure you, you're aware of Mark. He's uh, a New York Red Bulls guy, uh, host of Seeing Red, which you can find on backhill.com. Uh, he asks whether or not you're, you're, yourself and, and your group believe that there's a, a chance to build here. Is building a stadium the, the goal in Chicago, in the city limits? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, we need a short-term venue, and that's you know one of the main reasons that I left Indy when I did was uh, to... Uh, spur uh, securing the venue. Uh, Soldier Field is our, our main target right now. There are other options in Chicago, um, but even at Soldier Field, that will be a short-term uh, solution. Uh, our long-term goal, or even medium-term goal, is to build a soccer-centric stadium in the city of Chicago uh, in a central location. Well, what is the, you know, obviously I, I know you just went through, um, you know, a massive effort to get everything lined up in, in Indianapolis and, and, and there are always going to be struggles. I mean, Chicago is a level of complexity beyond India, I imagine. What, what's, what's the, the goal in terms of the, the, the size, the location, you know, the, the sort of, the, the, yeah. you know, how I mean, in Chicago, it's different in that it's, we recognize it's mainly going to be a private, uh, effort. So, uh, that, We'll make it simpler from a logistics standpoint. Uh, at a size, you know, likely 20,000. Um, we'll see where things go uh, early on, but I think 20,000, and it needs to be accessible by public transportation. Chicago is an excellent um, public transportation market um, uh, with the L uh, system, and there are a number of locations. We've already met with the city of Chicago and their planning commissioner, and uh, we've identified uh, multiple sites that would be suitable for a, a stadium. Okay, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know that you've gotten this deep into it. Obviously, you've got your Indy 11 responsibilities that you're still taking care of um, as that team gets ready for the 2016 season. But Anthony's asking about an, an anticipated year one attendance if you're at Soldier Field. I mean, what, how, what, what do you have to target in order to sort of send a message, not just to the soccer fans of Chicago, that this is something you need to come out and see, but also, and be part of, but also the city of Chicago and the, the, you know, the, the, the people in Chicago who would be helpful in getting a stadium built? Yeah, this is an easy question that I could just deflect and say, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll try to get the most we possibly can and just not give a number. But I'll give you a number. I think it's important that we average five figures a game. We have to be at okay. least what we're doing in Indy, which is we're leading the league. We have the last two years with uh, more than 10,000 fans a game across the first two seasons. And I think in Chicago, it needs to be at least that. And uh, I think it can be more than that. You know, at Soldier Field, if that's where we end up, uh, it'll obviously be a downsized situation, utilizing the east side of uh, Soldier Field and the south side and closing up uh, the rest, but using the 100 and 200 levels. Um, but, yeah, there needs to be, but more so than just numbers, raw numbers, there needs to be relevance. Yeah. You know, the team needs to be felt as it's really part of the soccer community, part of the city, and in Indianapolis, and granted, it's easier in a small market to accomplish that. Indy 11 is part of the, 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 the landscape of the sports market. You know, cab drivers will talk about Indy 11. And that's, you know, kind of your rule of thumb. The cab drivers know who the heck you are. <laughs> and we need to get to that point in Chicago with the NASL team. Uh, in Indy, we very much were able to do it with a huge grassroots effort. That's an important part of it. Um, we're throwing a ton of advertising money Added is not an option in Chicago because of the size and the expense of media there. Um, but I'm confident that you know, using 
this uh, strategy of making it the community's team and also having that public ownership that uh, supporters trust will be an important mm-hmm. part of making this change successful. Uh, you know, you've already pointed out some of the, the distinct differences between a, a market like Indianapolis and, and Chicago. Obviously, Indy is a, an NFL town, and we know the NFL dominates uh, pretty much everywhere that it exists, and even where it doesn't. Um, but in Chicago, rising above the noise has to be a gargantuan task. I mean, you, yeah. you, you, you were part of the fire. Now, I imagine that the state of MLS at that point in time dictated a lot of 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 what your bar was, and it may not have nearly been as high as it would be today. So, w- what is the bar for relevance in Chicago? I don't know how you put. Do you, how do you quantify yeah. that? You know, I don't know, um, Jason, that you look for relevance in all of Chicago. I think you look for relevance among those three million people that are emotionally and economically uh, tied to soccer, and so that means the the ten o'clock news and the. Uh, network affiliates may not be talking about you, and that's okay. Uh, as long as you know the three million people that 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 care about the sport, care about soccer, are talking about you, and um, they're interested in you. They care about you know the players, um, and they care about the standings. You don't want to just be a, a social outing like minor league baseball, where people just go to the games for entertainment. I mean, it's great that they do, right. but you want to become uh, something that they care about. Uh, because, you know, we're not going to be the best soccer uh, in the world. The Chicago Fire is not the best soccer in the world. Uh, people can get better soccer for less money by turning on their uh, iPad or their uh, computer or their television. Uh, we need to be a team that's relevant, that people care about. Peter, did I lose you? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Here. You just yeah. dropped off. Okay, all right. I heard a. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so <laughs> I, I'm. I, I'm not sure exactly how to frame this question, but but it certainly seems to to me that it's possible that there's something. And, and, and I, I, you know, the, the pull of Chicago as your hometown is obviously something you've mentioned several times. But is this a bit a little bit about getting professional soccer? Uh, I'm say right in Chicago, after, especially after the, the fire had to end up in Bridgeview. Uh, there's certainly a um, itch that I ha- need scratched. Okay. Um, I, my last day with the fire was 10 years and now 12 days ago. Yesterday when it was announced, it was 10 years and 11 days uh, prior to that. And um, certainly, obviously, I'm human. It's nothing I'm ever going to forget. Uh, but I want Chicago to have uh, great soccer. I want Chicago to be a great soccer city. I want soccer to be relevant in Chicago. And... It's yeah. I, I started to go to professional soccer games with the Chicago Sting. I started. Um, this will be the fourth team I started in Chicago. I love Chicago. I love soccer. Um, there is a personal part of this uh, for me, but I also feel a responsibility into the soccer community uh, to get it right and to have a, a a great team in the city. Is there something to be said, uh, Peter, and maybe this will be me putting it on you, and, and I'll just get your response here, to, to the your effort in Chicago, uh, especially considering that there is an MLS team in the market, uh, considering U.S. soccer is in, in the backyard there, uh, for, for a lot of reasons, that, that the successful failure of your project in Chicago with NASL is a referendum on NASL and its model? I think it's going to be a really important uh, project that can be 
um, I don't know if you want to say compared or used as a, a sample for what can be done in other markets that already have MLS teams. And a lot of it is, you know, a lot of the situation is about creating differentiators with the team that's already there. Sure. And a big part of that is geography. And if you look at MLS uh, markets, whether it's, it's Dallas, Boston, uh, the Bay Area, uh, there are opportunities for second teams in those markets. And Chicago is, is one of those. New York was one of those. And, and you know, people forget, you know, the Cosmos are uh, operating uh, and doing very well. And, uh, you know, maybe not to some people's expectations, but, you know, they're solid and growing and they have an opportunity if they can get the new stadium to be a, a, a really special team there. And um, I think you're going to see other markets try the same thing. So Chicago, I'll say, is, you know, one of several that there's an opportunity to do this. And obviously people will be looking at it if it goes well. Maybe it inspires others to do the same. Uh, you know, just just from a, a bigger picture perspective, and I know you're not necessarily dictating NASL policy from the top down, Peter. And, and as you said, it's a much more decentralized league than than maybe soccer fans are used to with MLS. Um, is there something you know? Is there something to the idea of being in big markets like Chicago or, or trying to share a market like New York versus targeting some of these smaller smaller mid sized yeah. towns? Because you eventually, need, eventually, you need to do both. Okay. You need to do both. It's not one or the other. Um, what I loved about Indianapolis and um, uh, is that there's no Major League Baseball. Yeah. So in the summertime, in the core of, of the NASL season, you can uh, get the hearts and minds of, of the community. Uh, it's difficult to do in a market like Milwaukee, for instance, another market I'm very familiar with, uh, or St. Louis. You know, People keep thinking St. Louis is going to be the best place for a professional team. But the Cardinals just own St. Louis uh, from April through October, mm-hmm. and that's difficult to challenge against. I, I think these other markets like you know Nashville and uh, Indianapolis are uh, real uh, can be real winners for professional soccer. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. On that front, are you are you then um, subscribing to the notion that that Chicago is more diverse, and because of the the sheer size of of, of the town that that it can, yeah. regardless of the Cubs and the White Sox, that, that there's room there? Yeah. It's, as I said, it's, it, out of the, we're not going to be marketing or hoping to reach 9 million uh, people. It's uh, 3 million people that care about soccer. Um, <laughs> hey, that's a pretty good market right there. 3 million people where soccer is their favorite sport. They're emotionally and economically connected to it. That's uh, more than large enough. You know, the challenge is reaching them and reaching them effectively and making them feel like this is their team. Uh, this team on the field represents them. Um, you know, this, it, so the way it's not dissimilar from Indianapolis is we could come into Chicago and, and do it half-assed and not do it right, not put the resources behind it, and it would fail. Uh, or we can put the resources behind it, uh, some uh, smart thinking and um, – make it inclusive and get people involved in the community and it has the potential to succeed. It's not a slam dunk. This isn't um, a guaranteed success. Uh, there's a lot of skeptical people out there uh, for very good reasons. <laughs> it's isn't going to be easy. Uh, but, you know, it is a market I know really, really well and I'm confident that if we work it uh, hard and work it smart and work it with the right uh, financial resources, 
we can make it successful. Okay. Um, one more thing on the big NASL picture, and then I want to wrap with uh, just uh, you know closing down your your time with the eleven, at least in terms of of being the president and launching uh, that club. The uh, the NASL attitude towards expansion um, is aggressive, even though the, they've had some issues, and we just talked about the Silverbacks. There are a lot of of cities that have expressed desire to move up in the world soccer wise in fact i'm holding a car just because i'm fidgeting from louisville uh, louisville city fc because they sent me a bunch of stuff peter and they're in they just had their first usl season they drew very very well and they're targeting mls is there something missing uh, they should should a town like louisville be targeting nasl or are they they limiting themselves by only identifying mls as the ultimate goal yeah each case is uh uh individual and up for interpretation, not only by the market, but by the owner. Uh, I think Louisville would make a great NASL market. Um, I think it has the potential to be a great MLS market. Uh, so I, I wouldn't try to box any market in any one decision. Okay. You know, it depends what uh, the investor is looking for and how he wants to go about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's just interesting that I imagine from an NASL perspective, it's sometimes got to be frustrating. Again, the, the, on the negative side of things, the San Antonio Scorpions are no more, and they're being replaced by a USL team with a group that's, uh, that's identifying MLS as their goal. I mean, it, it just... It, 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 I'm not saying it's a... You know, I'm not saying this to criticize NASL. I'm sort of identifying the odd situation we have in this country when it comes to the, right. to the movement. It is, between. it is, and then also you have you know Miami FC and, and you have uh, Puerto Rico sure. uh, that have chosen NASL route as essentially the end route, not as a stepping stone uh, to MLS. Very true. And Very you, know, true. you can throw Minnesota in there, but the truth is, if you push uh, their ownership to the wall, and uh, they'd probably say, you know, we were forced into that move to MLS. Yes, this is true. We, at the time, uh, preferred NASL. Yeah. That, and it, it's, it's a, you know, market-to-market and owner-to-owner uh, decision. Uh, NASL has the opportunity to be uh, a very good league, a great league, and um, uh, I'm confident that in the long term it will be. Yeah, the uh, the story is that Dr. McGuire and his group were pushed because uh, the MLS was going to go into Minnesota regardless of their involvement, and that would have obviously hurt Minnesota United. So that's the story there that you're referring to. All right, Peter, let, let's just put a bow on, on your, your time with Indy 11, even though you're not quite done with your job there. Uh, just give me a sense of, of what you learned. I mean, everybody knows that you've got this long history of starting clubs, but um, is there something you're still learning even in a, uh, even at this point? Oh, absolutely. And by the way, um, I'm not... I'm certainly going to be there for a little while, both um, consulting with the new president, a great guy named Jeff Belskis, comes over from Indianapolis Motor Speedway, who's going to be uh, fantastic for the organization. I'll help him in the transition. But maybe more importantly, I'm uh, going to finish out the uh, uh, the player signings, put this team together. Now, I am really excited about uh, the team that's being put on the field. In fact, I, 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 uh, when we had a meeting yesterday to tell the staff about the transition, uh, I told our owner in front of everyone, I said, I'm confident this team's going to compete for the championship, and I want to make sure that if we do get a championship, that I'm able to get a championship ring for <laughs> NASL this year. Um, this week, we're announcing at least four more signings, maybe five. Out of those five, four of them have MLS experience. Three of those four have six years or more. Um, at least two, no, three of them, I think, have been team captains. Uh, and that's on top of the other uh, high-level signings we, we've had earlier this year. 
Uh, I'll give you a bit of a, a news drop right now, which uh, our PR director, John Kluder, probably isn't going to be thrilled with me for doing it. Uh, but today we're going to be announcing the signing of uh, veteran uh, MLS uh, defender Lavelle Palmer, oh, wow. uh, Jamaican national team player, uh, who's really going to strengthen our back line. He can play right back for us or even in the midfield uh, if needed. And the uh, other signings we have later this week, I think, are on a par with Lavelle. So uh, that goes back to what I was saying earlier, where the NASL needs to step it up, uh, increase their investment in players, increase the um, quality of play on the field. And back to your last question, that's what I've learned about my experience in Indianapolis is that if we have ambitions to be a top league in America, we need to uh, invest in the quality of the play on the field. Peter Wilt is moving on. He's uh, been an integral part of the launch of, of Indy 11, the man behind the that club and their successful launch. Now he's moving on to a big uh, project in Chicago to get an ASL team launched there. Peter, we'll certainly be hopefully chatting with you as that process gets underway. I'm fascinated. I was just in Atlanta. I talked to some people in the soccer community down there. I'm fascinated by the idea of starting from scratch. I've never been able to really follow along. I, I hope this is uh, a success for you, and I hope we get to, to see a little bit of behind the scenes as this goes along. You got it, Jason. Take there care. Peter Wilt joining us on Soccer Morning. Fantastic, as always. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll go to the other side of the things for NASL and talk about Atlanta. The Silverbacks shutting down their operations. And uh, Atlanta, an interesting soccer town. Soccer Morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. All right, here we are back on Soccer Morning. It is a um, very North American Soccer League heavy program today. It's just a, a feature of the news. It's just the way things happened here. Peter Wilt just now talking about his move to Chicago as he uh, works to get an NASL team launched inside the city limits. Uh, an NASL team is no more as of yesterday. That's the Atlanta Silverbacks. To talk about the situation with the Silverbacks, uh, what's next for Atlanta soccer? Certainly build towards MLS 2017. Jason Longshore joins us now. He works with soccer in the streets down in Atlanta and uh, has been a part of that scene for a long time. Hey, Jason, how are you? Hey, good. How are you? It's uh, it's good. You and I just, uh, you know, I was in Atlanta this weekend. You and I just had a, a long chat uh, on Sunday morning about a lot of the things we're going to be talking about right now. And this was before the Silverbacks uh, demise. Uh, in light of the actual announcement, what are your what are, what are your thoughts here? I can't say it was really a surprise. Um, at the end of last season, I think most people, if you really pushed them to it, would have thought that that would have been it for the club. Um, the longer it went on without an announcement, there was hope. And I mean, I know from different rumors I heard around town that that had enough juice to it to believe that at least there was something going on. There were a lot of conversations about ways to bring the Silverbacks back for 2016. And they tried everything they could to find a local owner for it to work. And there just wasn't one that made enough sense. Well, I mean, here's here's the problem. And this actually speaks a little bit to the NASL challenge uh, of U.S. soccer and, and the divisional uh, designations that they fought against. 
how do you possibly sell if you're the NASL? How do you sell a local owner on the Silverbacks when MLS is coming in next year? Um, n- now that still may be impossible, whether the Division One, Division Two things apply or not. Uh, NASL would say that that's a restraint of their trade, and and I can see that. But you still basically have a a difference in kind here. The 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 Arthur Blank backed MLS rich kids on the block versus what the Silverbacks have been working with, Jason. Yeah, I mean, forget the Division One, Division Two specifications at the moment. It's that's exactly what it is. Is you're talking about you know probably the, the leading businessman in the city of Atlanta um, competing with you know a a smaller team, and <laughs> right. that's been the Silverbacks' issue for their whole history has been being under resourced. They yeah. just haven't had the resources to compete. And Peter nailed it in the interview before. That's the biggest jump NASL has to make to be successful at whatever level they want to be, there has to be more investment in the clubs. And Atlanta just didn't have that. You know, obviously all of this, you know, it may have been a different situation if there had been significant investment ahead of the MLS announcement and obviously their build towards joining the league. But, you know, it, it speaks to sort of the difficulty of selling soccer in that particular town, especially, and, and again, it's, part of NASL's problem with a minor league label on it, Jason. Yeah, that's definitely an issue. I mean, you have to look back at the history, though. The Silverbacks folded after the 2008 USL First Division season. They went away, and they went away for two full seasons. Part of that was due to being under-resourced. Part of that was due to the whole USL growing NASL team ownership thing. All of that played into it. But this was well before Atlanta United was announced. They only came back because Traffic Sports paid for them to come back yeah. to fill out the NASL in 2011. And Traffic ran them on a shoestring budget for a few years. And it was always a question at the end of every season, are they going to come back? Are they going to come back? Are they going to come back? And then once Atlanta United was announced, that did change the landscape. But the issues were there well before. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I mentioned it uh, at the top of the show, and you and I talked about it. Uh, you know, Atlanta didn't have, I mean, going back to the NASL, the original NASL days, they had the Chiefs. There was um, the Apollos. I'm not sure what their existence was and how long they, they lasted. I can't remember. But It's one year. Yeah, so you had, the, you, know, you had the return of professional soccer to Atlanta with the Ruckus in 1994. That's obviously, you know, before MLS had even launched um, in the, the real, true Wild West days of American soccer. Uh, is there... You know, look, the, the market dictates, and certainly there are people within American soccer who say comp- competition is actually a good thing, regardless of who the teams are that, that get sort of knocked off. And Peter Wilt sort of said the, 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 the market decides. But it, there, is a, there is an element of tragedy here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're talking about a club with a lot of history. I mean, for me, the first pro soccer game I ever saw was the Atlanta Ruckus in 95. And I'd been a fan since I was a kid for nine years at that point and had no opportunity to see it. There's a lot of kids in Atlanta that the Silverbacks were their first experience with pro soccer. There's a lot of adults. It's a sad day because of that. There's a lot of people who really care about the team. Not even getting into the front office, not even getting into the players who are around the team, not even getting into the community. You know, it's a sad day. It's a it's a, a resource that Atlanta soccer, you know, doesn't have anymore for a year. So it's gonna be a different twenty sixteen for Atlanta in soccer. Yeah, you know, that that is there is a gap year now. Um, you know, <sighs> A lot of talk about how Arthur Blank and how uh, Atlanta United, even previous to, to naming themselves that, could have responded 
uh, could have, you know, what they could have done. Is there, was there any real uh, practical way for Atlanta United to involve themselves in the Silverbacks or to, to lean on the Silverbacks or to utilize the Silverbacks to buy? The, is there anything at all there, Jason? I don't think so. Um, I don't know if conversations were ever held between the two groups. Uh, it's, it's possible. It wouldn't surprise me if there were. But there was a, a marked difference once uh, the Cosmos came into NASL and traffic got more aggressive in wanting to make NASL a competitor to MLS. Um, and I think that would have prevented any kind of cooperation between the two. There was definitely talk from the NASL side and from the, the local ownership side at that time about we want to be a competitor, we want to be Division One, and I think that just it wasn't going to work because of that stance. Uh, you know, just going back and uh, before uh, before MLS was on the scene, give me a sense of uh, of what you know what the Silverback even before traffic got involved to prop them up after '08. Just to, what was the the major problem and what was the missteps and 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 really, I mean, they lasted long enough that you could say it was a success on some level. But give me a sense of what marketing the the Silverbacks was like for that team uh, over the course of a decade and a half. It's it's an interesting story. I mean, if you go further back to the Ruckus days, the Ruckus lasted four seasons. They played from 95 to 98, and they went through three owners in that time. Um, I worked for the team when I was in college in 97 and 98, and it was an absolute fly-by-night type of organization. Then the Silverbacks came in, um, and then Boris Dracunica bought into them in 2000, and he built Silverbacks Park in 2006, which looked to be a great positive step for the team and you had you know a little bit more security but then the team folded a couple years later in 2008 so you had some different missteps i think you had um some problems with leadership at the time you had you know smaller budgets you had a, a really bad i mean this is going way back and i don't think it even applies anymore to issues the silverbacks have but there was a, a bad mistake with merging a couple youth clubs that that turned a lot in the youth soccer community against the Silverbacks, and I don't think they ever really won them back. So you just had an issue with being you know, open to the community. And the group that came in, I had to give Michael Hitchcock and PMI and the people that he helped bring to the Silverbacks and Andy Smith and Evan Mitz and the staff the last couple of years were outstanding and did everything they could to get into the community. And I think you saw that with larger attendances, with more support, more talk about the team. But you had so much baggage to overcome by that point, and you didn't have a local owner. So it was it was fighting uphill by that point. But those guys did an amazing job to get it to where it was the last couple of years. You know, you just uh, you did listen in to the Peter Wilt uh, discussion, uh, Jason. I, I, you told me that. You know, he, he identified Chicago, which is the third largest metropolitan area in the country, as having three million soccer fans. Out of, a, out of nine and a half million people in that area, he thinks there's three million soccer fans. Uh, Atlanta's, Atlanta's metro population is something like, like almost six million, five and a half million people. That, that's not insignificant. It's, it's roughly the size of DC, um, Miami. Uh, so it, how many soccer fans are in Atlanta? Uh, and if they, it not, I'm not going to say if they couldn't support the Silverbacks, how do we know they'll support MLS? Cause I think these are obviously different beasts. And maybe you can give me some insight into why selling MLS will be different than selling NASL or USL. I'd love to know how, how Peter came up with that 3 million number because I want to do that survey here because I'm, I'm really curious. Um, it's interesting. I mean, you've seen Atlanta has done really well with the big events. Uh, 
packed the Georgia Dome for Gold Cup this past summer, packed it for Mexico national team games, uh, packed it for AC Milan, Club America back in 2009. Big events have, have done really well. But, you know, we talked about this. The largest crowd for an Atlanta pro soccer game with an Atlanta team was Soccer Bowl 2013, um, 7,000 people. If you go back to the Chiefs days in the 80s and 60s, yeah, there were larger crowds, but that's ancient history at that at this point in Atlanta. It's it's tough. It's going to be for Atlanta United. I think the fact that they have sold, you know, the the number of deposits on season tickets they have, you're you're getting around the thirty thousand mark. That's significant. There is an interest. Um, I think the fact that you have Arthur Blank behind it that immediately makes it credible. And that's kind of been the issue. If you if you talk to the old-time sports talk radio folks, the old-time you know, newspaper folks here, the issue is always, oh, well, soccer won't work because it never has. And they're thinking of the Chiefs days. They're thinking of the ruckus days when there were articles every other week about the team folding. That's what comes to mind for them. And now that you have somebody like Arthur Blank behind it, they know it's not going to fold because he's been successful with everything he's done in the city. So now it's taking it to the next step of truly engaging the people behind it. And I think Peter mentioned that making making the people care about that team will be the most important thing Atlanta United can do. And I think that was always a struggle with the resources the Silverbacks had was taking it from the the minor league baseball, soccer type of thing where it's a fun night out to go yeah. and taking it to that passionate, I care about right. this team. I'm going to get into an argument about who's playing striker. Well, you that know, type of stuff. like every other market in this, every other big city in this country, there is, there, there are significant, like, divisions between the type of soccer fans that we see. Um, you know, I talked about going out to the, one of the local soccer bars in Atlanta, I think probably the most well known or the most, one of the most popular, uh, for FA Cup soccer on, on the weekend, and it was lots of Arsenal fans and, and lots, uh, there were some West Ham fans and, and some Manchester United fans, and I, I don't know if those people are going to trickle over. And, and if you have a team like the Silverbacks or, or even MLS for that matter, you also have the, you know, a, a significant, the, the type of sports fan that is attracted immediately to that team may not be the type of sports fan that's calling up the sports talk radio station to also talk about whether or not, uh, the, the, the Falcons coach should be fired or the Hawks need to sign somebody. So that's, that, that, that makes it a very interesting. I mean, this is true about co- soccer across the country, Jason. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's kind of its own little world. I mean, I've been, you know, I, I got my job with the Atlanta Ruckus through the old North American soccer mailing list. That was how I connected. Soccer's been a, you know, an internet popular sport from the beginning because I think at the beginning, the newspapers and radio and TV would not cover it, and you had to go somewhere to, to get coverage. So now. It's kind of getting out of that bubble, being able to take it to more of a a mainstream type of thing. Atlanta is going to be interesting because of the timing. I think with 2017 being the year that the Atlanta Braves moved from downtown to Cobb County, mm-hmm. which is you know, not quite a long trip, but it in terms of Atlanta traffic, it's a long trip. And Atlanta United moving downtown. There's going to be an interesting shift in the conversation. Um and I'm really curious to see how that plays out for United. Yeah, you know, um, so Peter Wilt is here, and, and he's talking about creating a team inside the city limits of Chicago and kind of going for a particular group of people, you know, drilling down to the to what will make that team successful in NASL. Obviously, the bar is higher in MLS. Um, I think that that also means that within MLS, and because of the scope of the project and putting them in Mercedes-Benz Stadium and having Arthur Blank as the owner, 
that there's a wider notion of making this team successful across all of Atlanta's various groups and, and subdivisions and cultural divides and, and, and demographics, Jason. And, and a lot of that's going to be about turning the, the team into a cultural representation of the city of Atlanta. And you and I talked about this. How the hell do they do that? It's it's interesting. I mean, five years ago, I would have probably said that Atlanta is not ready for MLS. Um, the city has changed drastically in the last few years. Uh, the Atlanta Hawks really gave you a blueprint on how to market effectively to the city um, being downtown. I think they figured out that, hey, you know, the people who live out in the suburbs where they're going to have to drive an hour, hour and a half to get to the arena, get to the stadium and in an hour, an hour and a half back, they're not my hardcore base. They're going to be my casual fans. They're going to come on a weekend. They're going to bring the family a few times a season. My hardcore base is in the city, and the population inside the city has grown drastically in the last few years. Atlanta's become a much more international city. The Hispanic population has has boomed here in recent years. Those things give United a, a really nice platform to jump off of, and I think that's why you're seeing... 30,000 deposits on season tickets. Um, you also have a brand new stadium, which always helps. That makes it exciting. And I, I can't, I just can't, you know, I can't say that Arthur Blank being involved doesn't take it to another level, that if somebody else was the owner, it yeah. wouldn't be at the step. It's going to be fascinating to see um, how all of this plays out in, in Atlanta. Um, you know, I happened to be in town while everybody uh, in the staff was down in Fort Lauderdale for the for the combine. Even though Atlanta's not drafting anybody this year, uh, I think it's a matter of of, of networking, of, of watching the talents, of getting their feet wet. Certainly, Carlos Bocanegra is a first time technical director, uh, Jason. Um, so I, I wasn't able to talk to the team, but what I got from from you and from some other people I met uh, was sort of these these cultural things that are happening in in the city of Atlanta. And I'll ask you, since you are. Um, involved in, in obviously working for soccer in the streets and then con- connected to the, the past with the ruckus and the silverbacks and then involved in discussions with, with Atlanta United, how they're doing so far uh, with that outreach and with those connections and, and whether you have optimism that Atlanta United gets it from that level. I, I absolutely do. They've been great from the minute, even before the team was announced, to be honest. Uh, the Falcons kept uh, Jim Smith involved with the Falcons organization for a number of years. Jim was the GM at the Columbus crew uh, around the time that the stadium was built. And he's really led the effort behind the scenes on building the the foundation for the team inside the Falcons organization and inside Arthur Blank's family of businesses. Uh, and we were involved in those discussions from soccer in the streets early on. And then once Darren Eels was hired, once Carlos was hired, once Ann Rodriguez was hired, We've had a chance to meet with them. They've been involved in our, our fundraising events and have been a huge help at Soccer in the Streets and taking us from uh, a much smaller organization a couple years ago to a much bigger one now. I mean, we're growing, we're hiring uh, a little bit faster than we thought we would. It's been great. Jason Longshore, uh, follow him on Twitter, Longshoe. Ignore that R uh, for his Twitter purposes. Uh, again, Soccer in the Streets, a very cool organization. If you're watching the video stream, uh, my, my Soccer in the Streets scarf is back there where I'm pointing somewhere. I should pull it out and give it a little bit more uh, run. Jason, it was great meeting you in Atlanta. It was a great talking to you now. Uh, certainly a lot to cover 
um, you know, as we move forward, I, I will, I'm taking a personal interest in what's happening in Atlanta. I, I, I'm seeing that they're, that the, the Carlos Bocanegra has been doing some radio as well. We're, we're, I'm really interested to see how this plays out. It's a it's a fun story to watch being on the ground here. Um, like we talked about, I don't think there is a city that has added MLS or an NASL team for that matter that will look like Atlanta. I think it's going to be very different just because of the the culture here, every all the backstory. You're starting from scratch, and you're able to build it in the right way, and I have faith that the people involved are going to do that. There you go. Uh, Jason Longshore joining us on Soccer Morning. Thank you, Jason. Let's take a break. We'll come back open up the phone lines and talk to you on a Tuesday about whatever. Oh, look, all of that stuff was fascinating. If you have insight or thoughts or questions about the future of growth in MLS or NASL, hit us up now. Soccer Morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. All right, we're back on a Tuesday edition of Soccer Morning. Man, what a show we have had so far. Two very excellent guests. Lots of insight into the American soccer thing that we've been doing around here for some time. It's always, it's always weird. Phone lines are open, 646-832-3909. Aaron in Jersey, first up. Hey, Aaron. Hey, how you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> it's, it's been a day. It's, it, it, it's, it's a thing. Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, no, it's sad to see these, you know, a team, um, fold, especially with a lot of history, even though it might not have been, um, or, you know, it might've been a little disjointed, you know, clearly a lot of people, you know, cared about it. And, and, and I guess what I really wanted to bring up was the fact that, you know, I, I think NASL has a kind of an existential issue because of traffic that long term, you know, is, is going to put a lot of U.S. soccer at risk because regardless of what maybe people who are, you know, at MLS or part of the U.S. soccer, you know, community who, you know, don't like NASL, if that league folded or there was a substantial, you know, kind of, you know, external shock because, you know, big indictments or, you know, traffic folds or something, you know, major like that, which I don't actually think is that unrealistic either. Right. Um, that, that would have a huge impact, um, you know, and, and I'm sure, you know, the vultures would attack and grab, you know, pick parts and all that kind of stuff. And, and people would think, you know, that's great. But I think structurally it wouldn't, you know, be good for the game. And, and I really think that's where U.S. soccer leadership you know, you know, Gelati, uh, you know, collecting awards and all that good stuff, um, you know, really needs to step up. And I think U.S. soccer leadership needs to step up because I just, I just, I just don't see how these two organizing approaches to soccer work in the U.S. Yeah. together. Uh, you know, I don't mean together like they work together. I mean, just coexistence. And I, and, and I understand MLS's model is basically just, expansion until they reach, I don't know what, 32, you know, until they reach the NFL number or some magical number where it feels exhausted and, and so on. But I mean, I, it just to, to me, 
there's something kind of just normal about what's going on with these two kind of structures I, and, I, I, and everybody I underneath it. And, and, but at the same time, I, I guess again, you're put you're putting the burden on U.S. soccer, which I think is absolutely fair. That's the only place really to turn to because again, we have this. You know, it, it's a, it's an open playing field. Anybody can get involved that wants to. The the groups that did MLS again built you know built as part of the 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 World Cup campaign in '94, obviously specifically designed to avoid failure at at every turn. Uh, you know, in, in in terms of the traditional business models, and that's put them in a difficult position in terms of operating within a wider American soccer sphere that involves people who don't want to follow that model, who do want open competition. It, it, you're, you're right, Aaron. I, 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 I find myself a lot of times looking at the situation and just sighing because I don't know what the solution is. I, I mean, to me, the only uh, thing that can happen, and, and, and I just have to imagine when, you know, I'm hoping you have new FIFA governance in the next, you know, year, it seems like we'll be, you know, moving to a better direction. I mean, that's not setting a bar very high, but uh, I think that's pretty realistic. And and I think you're going to start having some big questions once that happens into all the regions. And I think, you know, over the next five years, hopefully we can start getting a little more regional accountability. And at a certain point, you know, you're just going to start asking questions in these regions, whether it's Mexico, you know, I, I don't think in a weird way, Mexico has our version. They just started earlier. You know, it's just yeah. just as weird and goofy and True. kind of True. bad. If you think about how much history of football Mexico has, I mean, they should be just an absolute oh, yeah. superpower. Oh, no, no, I mean, they, you they, know, it shouldn't be close. They should be annihilating teams and really just fighting the Argentinas and Brazils for, for, for hemispheric domination. Oh, really. absolutely. Um, I, I, I think American soccer's thing is obviously being well behind the curve and trying to rush itself to relevance, where Mexico's thing has always been an inability. I mean, they, we share this. We, we, have, we, we are in, imminently capable of getting in our own way. That's certainly the absolutely. Mexicans and the United States, yeah. Absolutely. Aaron, I got... And, and, and the one... I'm sorry. Well, I got two, I got, I got two other callers lined up, so let's... Uh, yeah, go ahead. great. Thank you so much. Oh, okay. All right. Thanks a lot, Aaron. I was give, give oh, no, no. I know. I uh, uh, and, I, and I hit the button. <laughs> this is how it works. My apologies to Aaron. Al in, New, in Missouri, you're on the air. Hey, what's going on this morning, Jason? Uh, not, you Hello? know, uh, having a good discussion about American soccer. Al, what's on your mind? Oh, nothing much. You know, I you know, I admire um, Peter Wilt, what he's doing with the NASL and everything else. I'm just really kind of saddened to see the Atlanta Silverbacks franchise, you know, fold like this, but it was expected to happen, you know, with Atlanta United, what Arthur Blank is doing and everything else. Yeah. You know, look, I've always said that for me, one of the greatest tragedies uh, in American soccer is when a team dies. Now, there are ways to look at this situation and go, it was a natural occurrence, especially with MLS on the scene. But again, in the world that a lot of people want to see, in the American soccer situation a lot of people want to see, there's no reason for the Silverbacks to have to disappear, and MLS isn't coming to town to overshadow them. There's, there's a, an integration, and we're all part of the same thing. I don't think you can make that happen by snapping your fingers and wishing it into existence, but our goal should be to get to that point, right? Yeah, exactly. There are a lot of cities, you know, that would 
be great for, you know, for international soccer, USL soccer. And already one city I think would be perfect is San Diego since they're about to lose the Chargers today in this um, NFL vote. And for MLS, St. Louis, that they might lose Rams. Yeah, I don't know what's happening with the NFL stuff. Uh, uh, Aaron, uh, sorry, Al, I'm going to get to one more caller here before we shut it down, or a couple more callers. Appreciate the call from Missouri. NASL uh, chat there. Let's go to Roberto in Connecticut who wants to change things up. Hey, Roberto. Hey, hey Jason. How are you? Good morning. Uh, good morning. Are you are you are you driving this morning, Roberto? I am. Yeah, yeah, I am driving. But I just have uh, two questions, if you don't mind. Go ahead. Um, I was wondering, after watching the fully expected Ballon d'Or, in which Lionel Messi won, uh, just two things that came up to my mind. One, do you think we're seeing the last time that, that we'll see Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo on the podium? And two, do you think that Neymar is the um, the heir apparent as the best player in the world, or if not, who is a better player? Uh, I, I do think I do think that what you're seeing is Neymar uh, pushing himself into the conversation. I, I think we might have one or two more seasons where where it's Messi and Ronaldo one two still. Um, you know, I listened to to some of Ronaldo talks football on Sirius XM last night uh, while I was in the car, and uh, his co-host Mossy was talking about how he was he was upset not that Ronaldo finished second, but that the distance between a Ronaldo and Neymar was so great because he believes Neymar is the most dynamic player that Barcelona has and has really pushed himself. Uh, closer to, to to Cristiano Ronaldo, that Ronaldo has become one dimensional, and that one dimension is scoring goals. I see that. I see that argument, but but again, it's the it's the realities of the voting process. It's it's the it's it's a, essentially it's a popularity contest. You you don't have requirements in terms of watching games and being informed. So what you've got is a bunch of people voting who don't necessarily take into account some of the the changes that are happening over the course of the last couple seasons. I, I I don't think I think it's gonna be difficult. Neymar might not win a Ballon d'Or if he does until he's until he's pushing thirty years old. No, I, I don't know. I don't think that I don't know because I because I think of what his ability has been shown over the past uh, season or two at Barcelona. And look at his age. He's turning twenty four next month. He's at a relatively good age. I don't no, he, think. Is. he he's is. not necessarily old. He's not necessarily young. He's okay. at the right age. But, and I think, but Messi at, a, is... at a good season or two, he can win it as well. Okay, but Messi is how old? He's twenty eight. He's twenty eight. So Messi's got two, three seasons at least. Before start, people start to wonder if Messi's over there, and Ronaldo's already thirty, and he's still in this conversation. I think between Ronaldo and Messi, there's three, four seasons left. Two, three, four seasons left where they're going to be one and two. Now Neymar may finish second, but in terms of winning a Ballon d'Or, I mean, it, it, first of all, you have to assume that Messi and Ronaldo are going to continue to put up the numbers that they do, and I don't see that happen. I don't see the drop off yet. I don't see a drop off for again two or three or four seasons. So by that point. If we're talking three seasons, Neymar's 27. Then it's a matter of, okay, he's got to put together the, the transcendent year to, to rival the Messi's and Ronaldo's uh, of, the recent, uh, of recent times because at some point somebody else is going to – I mean, Paul Pogba is going to be in this discussion. Um, you know, There's going to be some, some great goal scorer who puts together a 45-50 goal season who's going to be in this discussion. I'm not saying that Neymar isn't capable of being a winner. I'm saying he's not going to be Messi. He's not going to be Correct. Ronaldo. And no, no, no. They're, they're completely different players. I, but I just would like to see the um, the surprise and the um, the suspense of 
having a top, having a three players for the Ballon d'Or, no, I, and not you. knowing who is the favorite. Oh, to win, I, I'm you with know, you. Throwing that suspense. I looked at I looked at the you know I looked at the 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 winners over the last couple of years. Obviously, this thing changed from being Ballon d'Or only to being the FIFA slash you know FIFA Ballon d'Or a couple of years ago. But if you look at the you know if you look at the pre FIFA voting because it's the last it's the last uh, so since they switched over 2010, Messi, 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 Ronaldo, Ronaldo, Messi. That's the winners, and then mm-hmm. Messi mm-hmm. and Ronaldo. Finished in second. Messi or Ronaldo was second in four out of those, or sorry, five out of those six years. With Andres Iniesta second back in 2010, when uh, I, I'm guessing Ronaldo had a poor year. I can't remember exactly what his what the issue was with Ronaldo back then. But if you if you go back before that, it was clearly a much more interesting award year to year because the the the, the people changed. The 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 top three changed year to year, and and. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I wonder if we're sort of in a pattern now that's going to be difficult to get out of, even if it's not Messi, even if it's not Ronaldo in terms of the best player in the world. Will people actually recognize that, or will they continue to vote for these guys? I mean, it all depends on their form in the end. Yeah, you would, you would think that, Roberto, but that doesn't always apply, because if the numbers are close enough, I mean, unless, again, unless, unless Neymar puts together a 50-goal season, Across all competitions, and Ronaldo and Ronaldo and Messi are only in the 30s. I just don't see how he overcomes the reputational problem that 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 is the fact that they are ahead of him in everybody's estimation until they drop off so significantly that that it's obvious. I'm just saying it has to be obvious. Yeah, yeah, of course. And look at silverware also won and performances done for their um, for club and country. I think, um, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, post Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. Absolutely, and, and and as much as I love the fact that we live in this era where we've got probably two of the greatest players of all time going against each other in this incredible rivalry, you know, it it is we do want to see a new generation of stars kind of take take the lead and become and get recognized for what they're doing again Neymar is certainly on that list and and again Pogba uh there, there's numerous guys that I'm not I'm not thinking of at the moment but we'll, we'll see uh Roberto I gotta run appreciate the call man hey no worries there goes uh Roberto up in Connecticut good Ballon d'Or tip there again Messi winning his fifth Ballon d'Or uh yesterday in Zurich Carly Lloyd winning the women's player of the year which by the way should just be the women's Ballon d'Or uh, I don't know why we've got to have the different whatever. All right, let's uh, let's wrap this up. Thank you very much, Peter Wilt. Brilliant as always. Jason Longshore, fantastic background on the situation there in Atlanta. The ATL jumping off uh, in one way, and obviously some tragedy in terms of the end of the Silverbacks. Chicago soccer future bright and interesting. Uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and close it down. Thank you very much for listening. What else? Anything else? Oh, that's loud. Let me turn that down. Uh, that's it, right? We'll be back tomorrow with a big Wednesday episode of the program. Thank you very much for listening to Soccer Morning on WorldSoccerTalk.com.